The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We're very happy today to talk with Pamela Richards. Dr. Richards leads the University of Central Lancaster's vision for the research theme developing expertise in individuals and teams. Dr. Richards supervises 18 doctoral students in the UK and worldwide in the area of decision-making, including military and fire and technical, complex rescues and elite sport. Her research focuses on the development and operationalization of shared mental models in high-pressurized naturalistic settings. Pam works externally as a consultant to the English Institute of Sport working with five podium sports, and has experience working in related domains of emergency services and military research. So welcome, Pam. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to uh, go back a bit. Uh, I happen to know uh, from our previous discussions that you started your career as a coach and, and were a coach for uh, at the international level for a long period of time, and you're, and you're now an academic. So can you kind of walk us through what inspired that transition? Sure. Um, I think there's always been a passion for me with learning. And I think um, I've always kind of walked the two paths in parallel. I was very uh, interested as an academic on the application and I'm very applied. And I think that's where the NDM paradigm for me um, drew my attention. And also from a kind of um, applied perspective, always like to explore the theory behind things. So very much the journeys have kind of been connected throughout the whole of my life um, as a practitioner to start with and then as a transition into coaching. And then I've literally moved more into academia as I've got older and uh, pursued more of a, a research agenda, really. Right. So uh, tell, tell me how a coach uh, becomes aware of NDM. Was, uh, was that a happenstance or were you, were you seeking a paradigm? How did that come about? Well, it's probably relevant to bring back a little bit of context in where I started. I started as a physiologist um, and was physiologist to the national team for five years, again, in the sport of field hockey. And uh, everything was physiologically based. But as a coach, even though I was very um, um, engaged with embedding that in the program, I found there was um, something missing in my athletes, um, especially in relation to them being autonomous decision makers on the field of play. And I wanted them to be autonomous and that they could make, you know, decisions for themselves. So I guess when they got to the stage that they were fit enough, um, there was other factors influencing um, why their performance was limited. And at that stage, I'd become really interested in decision making. Um, originally, I looked at a lot of motor control, which I think is really interesting and has um, some, some relevance. But I always found it was lacking in the application to the real world where you put the decision making into context. And then I remember I was very fortunate to come across one of Gary Klein's papers. And since then, everything's changed um, with regards to the way that I approach research. And very much then from that point, followed an NDM kind of paradigm um, to actually explore how decisions, decisions are made in the real world setting, both within sport and outside of sport. Right. So so um, so you were interested in the decision making piece uh, of the sport. Um, talk to me a bit about decision-making in, in sports. So uh, you mentioned sort of autonomous decision-making, and yet it's a team sport. So uh, just, just sort of walk us through how you uh, 
how you were thinking at the time of, uh, about decision making. And I think this is where I kind of started to transition into the NDM world because a lot of the motor control stuff had focused on anticipation, which I believe is of relevance within um, decision making. But for me, decision making in sport is so complex um, because you've got the individual's decision making, but then that collective mindset. And I think the more I started to explore concepts like shared mental models and understanding how they can then actually be used to enhance and accelerate decision making, that's when I started to move more into then understanding um, NDM and the theories that um, support it, but also cognitive task analysis as well, which I think for me is an amazing methodology because it's so adaptable, but it actually enables you to capture real life cognitions um, within a naturalistic environment. So you're immediately working in that real world setting. So that was the step for me to actually transition into kind of, I think originally embedding some of the um, knowledge that I was developing into my own coaching practice and exploring it within my own coaching practice as well. And that specifically was with the um, CTA um, methods that I started to employ. So that's where it started really as an attempt to understand how shared mental models could be used within a team decision context to accelerate and improve on field in action team decision making. Okay, so that's that's really interesting the, the thought of sort of introducing CTA practice into a, into a coaching uh, regimen. How, how did that come about in terms of did you just start interviewing your players or other coaches or what, what does it mean to try to embed CTA into coaching practice? I think at this stage, I was kind of still starting to understand CTA, but I was very much into getting players to reflect on their own performance. And um, because my philosophy is, is that if you can get people to be empowered and you can um, encourage them to take responsibility for their own reflection, they actually therefore develop um, more sustainable and more effective kind of mental models of performance. So I'd probably say that originally it was getting players to reflect on their own performance in practice, which is where I started with it. And then that started to evolve then into more of a kind of thought process, how that could actually work, both in a research setting, but predominantly within my coaching. And that's where I started to unpick really the CTA um, kind of environment in a lot more detail. And it was actually uh, Laura's work with um, Robert Hoffman in 2009, where she talked about combinatorics and about how you can actually think about integrating different processes together that captures different cognitions um, within a, a live environment. So I innovatively introduced into a training environment a combination of different CTA approaches, which would help to both capture decision-making processes within a high-pressurized team, but also use it as a vehicle to train and the development of more effective decision-making as well. Right. So there's, there's a lot to go into here. I'm particularly curious about um, your still a coach so you have that relationship with your with your athletes um and and i understand what you were saying earlier about introducing sort of self-reflection but is it there's a there's a point at which uh you know cta goes a bit beyond self-reflection into uh i've been called an interrogator in the past but more you know really trying to help somebody unpack that so um so so as as a coach you have that relationship with your 
with your athletes and yet you're getting closer and closer maybe to this sort of uh, interrogation approach. Uh, that feels like a very delicate balance to me. So you want to help them, you want to help them reflect, but at the same time, you're trying to unpack what, uh, what they're thinking about. So can, can you give us examples of, of how you sort of manage that delicate balance? Yeah, sure. And it, ironically, it was a conversation I actually had with uh, Robbie Hoffman. I remember I attended my first NDM conference in Bath, and I was really fortunate that at the end of one of the um, presentations, um, I was able to speak with Robert, and it was really helpful at that stage of my kind of career and understanding to have such a rich insight from him. And it gave me the confidence then to look at how I could actually um, explore CTA within my own kind of coaching world and then in other domains. And I think for me, there's multiple approaches that I've actually taken because I think when we're looking at um, decision-making in sport, there's a couple of key aspects that we need to be mindful of. And I think that's where we look at shared mental models, both in the technical side, the information, the data, um, what's actually driving some decisions. And for me, the work by Gary Klein with his um, recognition prime decision-making model was very much a kind of go-to kind of um, underpinning theory for me to start to explore that. And then, of course, then there's a situational context that is needed and the sense-making theories that come in. So for me, there's a collaborative inter interaction between all of those approaches that enables you to work more effectively then within a sport environment. And I think that's where I've been able to have the success and actually transfer then into other sports as well. So with that in mind, lots of the approaches that I've used, and they have to be bespoke to the teams that you're working with, enables um, the debrief sessions or the interactions that you have with players, whether it's on the field or on the court or in a meeting, to enable them to collectively um, agree and prioritise um, the type of information that they attend to, which links to the NDM theories, but then be able to contextualise them in relation of lots of different levels. And I think there's the team um, philosophical tactical level. Sometimes there's also an organisational one if you're sitting within like a performance pathway and a performance structure. And then in context of the game that day, so you can take the information and contextualise it specifically to the team that you're working with and also the individuals in the team. So it's quite a complex process that we're dealing mm. with. Right. And it sounds, uh, it sounds like the CTA probes in particular, the kinds of questions that we might ask in one or, or more CTA methods, uh, is, is it, am I right in thinking those are really what you're drawing on um, to try to, to pull that self-reflection out? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a mechanism where I could actually elicit the thoughts of the individuals um, and the team collectively then. So for some of the approaches I used, um, for example, using concept mapping um, was a very good tool. And I know that um, um, the, the vast work you do in this area, Brian, has really kind of shaped and informed my thinking and conversations that we've had as well. I think that concept mapping enables you to actually articulate really complex, sophisticated tactical play patterns um, quite effectively with the appropriate tools you can get the players to engage with, where they can actually contextualize actions of themselves and connections to others um, within the context of a particular um, certain situation. 
And then when you add to that then other methods, such as critical decision method, um, but also the think aloud um, problem solving approach to it, you actually get players then discussing and sharing what they're seeing and how they're organizing information and how they're attending to it as well with cues, but shaping that in context of a particular area of the field, it being a situational factor or within context of the phase of the game or in context of the opposition. And I think that's where, for me, there was that beauty of being able through combinatorics to actually join together different approaches, which from the player's perspective, it doesn't feel like they're being interrogated because it was designed in a way where we were unpicking the richness of the information that they were sharing collectively as a team, but in a natural kind of debrief engagement of a, a sports environment. Right. Well, this, this really does uh, apply CTA to a learning approach, right? So you're using the tools, but your your intent here is not to unpack in order to develop something else, like say a training program or a system uh, like, like we typically do, but this is actually using CTA tools as the learning method. Yeah, very much so. I think kind of it depends which hat I have on because I'm conscious of dual hat in here between being yeah. the coach world and as an academic. And um, I think there's that balance between the academic rigor that needs to underpin everything for research. And there's the ability then to make sense of how it works in the real world. So, so for me, for sure, it enabled me to capture um, learning from the player's perspective in the way that you could see the complexity and the sophistication of the thoughts of each player developing significantly. And in some of the work that I've published, I've shared that you can actually see the difference in the way people's uh, players are thinking when they first start to engage with a tactical concept to you know several weeks later where then they have more of a kind of um, complexity around their thoughts and the ability to actually implement that in practice as well and into competitive situations. But also there's the pattern where there's a development of a collective mindset, I would argue, with other players because the shared mental models of the players started to become more similar both in the information that they were attending to and the connections between those information. And if we argue that the head coach is the expert eye in this equation, again, there's further support that indicated that as the players shared mental models developed at an individual level and collectively, they became more aligned to the coach's shared mental model as well. So they developed this collective mindset, which enables the... Um, organic application then of the players taking responsibility for their own decision-making in high-pressurized decision-making on the pitch. So, Pam, I wanted to just circle back. You used a, a phrase that really caught my ear that you're, you're hoping, you're, one of your goals is to get the players to take responsibility for their own reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that seems so key to me. I think there's a lot of discussion of debriefs and how to lead a debrief so people reflect but, but it sounds like your intent is to step away a little bit and, and, and kind of scaffold to where they are doing their own reflection, where the coach doesn't have to be the one who's driving that. Is that, is that right? Um, I'd say in part, yes. I think um, driving it as in providing and creating the right learning environment for that to take place. But then, yeah, I believe that the players then need to have that um, um, autonomous ability to actually engage that process themselves. Um, 
based on the fact that if you you give somebody a mental model or a shared mental model, my experience is, is that it's it's only retained for a short period of time. Um, and the work that I've done, I've actually referred to them as internalized plans, that if you can actually structure the learning environment and empower people to take responsibility for engaging with their reflection and understanding their engagement in a naturalistic setting, they actually then attach more meaning to it and therefore they develop more sustainable um, mental models which when they're under high pressure they're able to execute them um, more effectively. I think that's such an important insight um, and distinction that I, I, I'm not seeing other people write and talk about is, is that you, you want the, the player or the learner to take responsibility for that reflection. I think it's key, Laura, because when we think about shared mental models sometimes, and I'd probably say for um, about the first six, seven years, I was very much into like, what are the cues? What are they seeing? How are they perceiving them? How are they organizing them? And how is that done within a kind of distributed sense making within a team as well? And I still believe that is really, really important. But as in the work that I've done, I've also kind of argued that there's the social side, um, which I've called uh, uh, the psychosocial side of a shared mental model. And it's about how then you put that together, because when you're in a team environment, you need people to be perceiving and attending to information in the same way and prioritizing it in the same way. So there needs to be within that context then an empowerment of people to take responsibility for their own um, role within that environment to contribute to the decision-making process of the task. But also they need to have an awareness of the role of others and where that sits in line with themselves if they actually want to maximize that decision-making process. And I think that's where it becomes much more complex. And that's where we need the two sides. We need both the, the social side of the shared mental model, but also the cognitions of the cues as well. Pam, you mentioned this sort of bespoke to each uh, each sport, each, each context. Um, so help me understand this a bit more in terms of how you are engaging with the players, because it sounds like you're kind of using tools uh, from the CTA toolbox, but specifically also some questions that we might ask as probing questions in a CDM interview, for instance. Um, and so I can imagine that just your asking those questions uh, encourages the, the self-reflection, but it also, I should think, helps the athletes to sort of realize what questions are important and what questions they can ask themselves and others. Is, is that part of the idea here is that you're actually in, in some way sort of giving them the CTA toolbox, even though I imagine you're not using words like CTA and mental model with them, you're, you're sort of giving them a, a way to think about their own performance by asking these kinds of questions. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. And I think you touch on a really good point here because like so far we've talked really about the kind of micro operationalizing of it within a kind of um, uh, training context. But I think what actually underpins this at the start is the development of the coaches um, to actually have a performance vision. And I've called this an alpha vision because I think sometimes, and this is where it needs to be bespoke to a team, we tend to transfer something that works well in a different team that we see and then assume that it's going to work in our team. But then the philosophy and the combination of players is different. So what works in one team, we just can't copy and embed in another team and expect the same results. So I'd argue that before any coach starts to engage with the kind of um 
in-action decision-making training to influence on-field decision-making. There needs to be a performance vision, which is developed by the coach and the coaching staff. And I would argue that an elite level that also includes other specialists like a psychologist and strength and conditioning physiologist. And then that shared mental model of performance is shared with the players. And I think that's really important because what happens then is that vision starts to get tweaked and refined. And when the players start to contribute to it, which I've called a beta version, it then starts to become live. But then everybody has a buy-in to the shared mental model. And that shared mental model is really the philosophy of how that performance environment will work, both the technical and the non-technical side of things. So there's a dual process going on. There's a top-down and a bottom-up where a vision is shared from the coaching staff and support staff downwards, but it's not set in concrete because it's touched by and influenced and shaped by the players sharing that vision And then it becomes a collective mindset that everybody's on the same page with what they're trying to achieve. And when you get to that stage, I think that's then when you start to utilize all the CTA approaches that you can then use to either capture within research or within a training context. Um, But I agree with you. I never use the word CTA with the players at all. (laughs) None of us do, I think. Um, I'm curious. I mean, you, you've obviously you've coached at the international level, um, and I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about how far down this kind of approach can be pushed. That is age wise. Um, I mean, I've I've coached you know four or five six year olds, and uh, and I, I can't say I've been this thoughtful about it. Um, but having said that, I mean, e- even when I first started coaching, uh, you know, the organization I was I was coaching under, they kind of brought us in and sort of walked us through you know, a, a couple of coaching philosophies, you know, start slow and then pick up pace and get more and more engaged closer to game level throughout the practice, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly didn't get into the self-reflection at the, mm-hmm. the six-year-old level, but I am curious about your thoughts about how far down this sort of thing could be pushed in the development programs. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it is transferable and it's the adaptability and the creativity of the coaches and the people working in those uh, learning environments to shape them. Um, The work that I've done has been um, quite successful within the sport that I work, but also transferred to about I'd probably say about 11 different sports um, where I've worked from Olympic world-class level right the way down to under-14s. And I think what is the main change is the language that you actually use when you're engaging with uh, um, individuals within that environment. So things are simplified, of course, because of the age, but also I think it's the language that's used then. It's fit for purpose for that age group, and then they're able to engage. So, for example, in one piece of work, we looked at um, accelerating and developing decision-making skills in under 14 footballers. And within a period of six weeks um, with one contact period a week, um, they actually accelerated their decision-making. And I guess it's relevant to say here that part of the work that I actually do with CTA actually involves the integration of video. So that enables us then to support the learning environment um, more effectively by integrating the video with the CTA. As a, as a post, uh, as a, sort of post-event review of the video that um, the, the players have engaged in? Is that, is that training video or game video or both? 
yeah, it, it's normally match video or, you know, game video. Um, yeah. And I think what I've normally seen previously is that when I've been in other coaching environments, and I know I probably was uh, responsible for the same thing myself many years ago, players would sit and watch a whole match again for either 90 minutes or 70 minutes or 60 minutes for the duration of, you know, um, the whole performance and they would go through it. And with the approach that I actually use though, the players only actually watch about uh, 90 seconds of video that's divided into approximately about six clips of 15 seconds. But by actually using the CTA processes, you enable the players to attend to the information specifically on each clip, which relates to the aspect that you're trying to develop and enhance. And that's where I think there's a real nice combination between using video with CTA. So players are in less time in debrief meetings because they're only watching six clips of 15 seconds. Their concentration is higher. Their takeaway from the meeting is higher because they're actually attending to the same type of information collectively as a team, which they're internalizing for themselves, but that's within the whole team tactics. So their transferability then onto the field increases their um, ability to make more effective decisions collectively as a team is what I found from my work. Right. Uh, you, you, you sound a bit fond of your coaching days. Uh, what, what do you miss about coaching? I'm, I'm really fortunate, actually, Brian, because I've got some amazing doctoral students I work with, um, both who are working in kind of domains outside of sport, but are also working in sport. And they're working at Olympic level and they're working at professional clubs and they're working at various levels below that as well. And they're all working on decision making. So I feel really fortunate that although I've kind of taken a step away from actually doing hands on coaching, I'm still very active with my thought processes because it's facilitating the journey now with my doctoral students for them to explore it within their own professional practice. So, uh, yeah, really fortunate that I can still actually keep a close connection to the coaching world, but really through the voice of my students. Very nice. So, Pam, I wanted to ask, you're very well known for your uh, high-pressurized decision-making framework. Um, and so I wondered if you would, uh, just for our listeners, kind of give a, a, an overview of that and talk a little bit about what motivated that framework. I think it was going back to what we started to talk about, really. I can remember actually sitting um, at the side of the field watching um, a tournament that I'd been engaged in as a coach and we hadn't qualified and was working really hard, both um, personally and my management team was and the players were. Um, but something just wasn't right for the amount of work we were putting in. We weren't getting their success and then started to change things. And I think from that point, there was a huge um significant step change in the way the team was successful we went on to win six europeans qualify for a commonwealth games and world cup qualifier so from not winning at all for five years actually then started to have this momentum of success and i think the things that changed for me were the things that we've been talking about but the way that i packaged it was in a framework so um the framework that i've developed has two interconnected models one of them addresses the kind of um the I call them data points, information points, cues that are in the environment and the order that we need to layer them. And the analogy that I use to people when I'm speaking uh, with people about that framework, it's a bit like tracing paper in that you actually have 
detail laid on top of detail on top of detail. And when you actually flatten the tracing paper out, you actually have the complexity of the decision-making context that you're working on, but you don't give it all at once, you layer it. So one of the models within the framework actually discusses what that that content is from a data point of view and how it can be layered um, to, to help develop decision-making. The second model talks about the psychosocial parts of it. So it incorporates the conversations that we've um, had um, during the podcast around reflection and about empowerment, um, because I think those two words are key. If we want the decision-making to become sustainable, we have to develop reflection and we have to be able to empower people to take that responsibility to engage in that environment. So the framework is this collective model of both the uh, content, the technical side of the shared mental model, and the social side of working in a team environment, and um, with the shared with a uh, shared mental model, which also incorporates within it the the dual processes of it being a top-down and bottom-up approach where that team philosophy is continually and organically growing because of the interaction in the team and um, with the coaching staff and with the players. Interesting. And so do you find that other this this model resonates with other coaches, this framework? Does this... Yeah, like the, the model's being transferred in, as I said, into about 11 different sports and the pattern of engagement that we see is exactly the same. So probably the Olympic paper of 2012 is a really good source for people to go to, to actually see the impact of it in action. And it also talks through the stages about how to implement it as well. But it's been transferred into 11 different sports and it's also used in other domains outside of sport as well. Um, although obviously it has to be adapted in, in terminology, it has that transferability. What is cybersport? Cybersport, um, I haven't done much with that, but I guess it's something online for um, kind of people in, in, in engaging with um, kind of online esports and that type of environment. But as much as I'm really interested in um, AI, Laura, I've not ventured down cybersport at all. <laughs> Yeah, I've never even heard that term. Interesting. Interesting. So, Pam, um, I'm curious, now that you're in a primarily academic environment, uh, even though you can coach ostensibly, I think, as you were suggesting through your through your students, I'm wondering if there are kind of skills that you rely on from your coaching days still in your academic work. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think... Um, for me, the devil's in the detail. So um, I'm very kind of passionate about working in an, an applied environment and unpicking the complexity of it and, and not just kind of generalizing things. So I think for me as a coach, that kind of making the 0.01% difference is really important. And again, I think it's that ability really to empower um, the players that I worked with um, is the same with my students and other environments. I like building teams and I like seeing people reach their potential. And that doesn't mean to say they have to be world-class. Um, it's about them maximizing their ability to achieve what they want to achieve. So I guess that's for me is a transferability from my coaching world that I take with me into my academic world and my research. Right. I, you've kind of hinted at giving, uh, you know, responsibility to the to the decision makers themselves. Um, I'm curious, just 
because I wrote a paper for the last NDM conference about the idea of motivation. I'm kind of curious to hear your your thoughts about just the concept of motivation. Yeah, I think it's really important from the buy-in. And I think there's a huge difference when people are perceiving something or watching something or attending to something. And I probably say it's not just motivation. I think sometimes it's about an emotional connection um, that, that people can have with the situation as well. I can remember sharing some videos with a group of athletes I was working with. And based on the content of the video, there was a huge different perception in the way they engaged with it because they attached meaning to what they were actually seeing because the team was quite an elite team that I was sharing the information on. So I think for me, there is an importance with motivation, but the motivation comes from how the um, educator, whether that's an applied consultant or whether that's a coach or a researcher, enables people to buy into the concept that they're working on. And I think if people feel they've got a voice and if they're part of it, they become more motivated to actually then buy into the concept and they engage more. So for me, it's it's, it's huge. The buy-in from people is closely linked to that motivation. I don't know if that's the kind of connection for you, Brian. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm curious always to talk about this issue because uh, my paper kind of made a case that as an NDM community, we, we still are very reliant on some uh, non-NDM psychology uh, hangovers uh, where we talk about things like motivation and then sort of resort to, you know, traditional uh, concepts and operationalization of motivation traditional ways of, of, you know, measuring motivation, uh, which, which didn't really feel very NDME to me. Um, so I tried to sort of lay out a, a developmental model of motivation. Um, and it, it sounds like you're coming at it from the perspective of, of, uh, like you said, how does the educator encourage that motivation? Whereas what I wrote about was more, where, where does that motivation, uh, even sort of grow, uh, grow from, uh, within the athletes or students or, or performers. So, um, yeah, just, it's, it's a, it's a recurring interest of mine because each time I, uh, see motivation talked about in the Indian literature, it we very much sort of punt to the, uh, uh, to the behaviorist approach. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's an interest of mine. Um, you're, uh, you, you mentioned Gary already. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can share some other folks that have kind of influenced your approach, um, uh, throughout your, throughout your journey, uh, any other sort of names stick out in particular folks, maybe who are outside the Indiana community that have had a, had an effect on the way you think about it. I think um, within NDM, like um, Robert Hoffman and Gary Klein stuff, as I was going through my my PhD and reading a lot of their work, it um, fascinated me. And they were very much a catalyst uh, for me actually exploring things within my own practice and within research further. I've been very fortunate um, within my um, um, network of talking to people like yourself, Brian, um, and also like Rob Hutton and Julie Gore, where I feel really fortunate that I've had really good critical friend conversations. And I think you can always learn and develop your knowledge by engaging with those uh, those high-level quality conversations with those type of people. So I'd probably say those three have really kind of uh, uh, have shaped my, my development and my thoughts as well. I think... 
outside of sport, um, I think there's um, a few really. I think my students for me um, always inspire me because when I speak with them and I hear the great work they're doing, um, it's really fascinating and it's a privilege to be part of that journey with them. So I think that's that's really key for me. And I'm really fortunate that being in a coaching world, I've had some amazing coaches that I've worked alongside. And I think I've taken a lot of um, learning from them as well. Um, and they've helped me grow as an individual within a sport environment, which has then kind of uh, touched upon the decision-making stuff as well. Nice. So I wanted to ask, we've been talking a lot about sport, but I know you've also done some work in law enforcement and emergency responders um, where some of the stressors and the stakes are a little different. And so I wondered um, if you would just talk a little bit about um, what are some of the differences working in these other domains? I think um, some of the response to that is challenging just because of the sensitivity of some of the work that's going on in those environments. Um, I can share those, some of the work that's going on with my students in those related environments, which is probably easier for me to talk about. Um, I've got one student in particular who's doing some um, amazing work on complex technical water rescue within the fire service. Um, fascinating work with looking at scenarios where um, they're um, addressing um, a casualty um, that's above water but from a height that they have to get down to um, and it's not until you actually start to get into these environments and you start to layer the complexity of the number of individuals that are involved in that work um, and how they actually have to think through different phases and different stages of the processes and I think when you're on these journeys with external environments you start to draw connections between um, your own world and their worlds and these start to understand the transfer of language to concepts that exist in their worlds. And that's when you start to realise that a lot of the challenges that we actually face, although they look and they're framed very different, there's a similarity between them. And I think that's where there's a real beauty in sharing, not only across sports, but sharing from a sport domain into a non-sport domain as well, because I am a firm believer we can always learn from exploring that cross-discipline practice. Sure, sure. And so when you were talking about coaching, um, I, w I was envisioning these these sessions where athletes are, are, are kind of sharing their own perspectives, what cues they're paying attention to, um, and kind of learning from each other and developing the shared mental model. Do you find that these other, and, and that sounds to me a lot, of, I've been on some sports teams that, you know, that, that seems like, you know, that the team uh, really thinks of themselves as a team. And I'm, I'm just wondering if that, that same um, kind of uh, camaraderie and we're in this together and we should be learning from each other. If you, if you find that in the um, police and the uh, uh, emergency service community. Um, to an extent, though, I think it is different. I think the challenge is, is when you're working in um, domains outside of sport is that normally they're not in static teams, they're more in fluid teams. So there's a slight difference to the way that um, that process is engaged with. And I think that influences then some of the mechanisms because they're required to be different to accommodate that fluid teaming approach. Um, but I think there's a common understanding, even in those non-sport domains, about an agreed way of working. But then the mechanisms that you put in place enables that to be um, made specific 
to the context which those individuals are specifically working in. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, so it, it sounds like um, you feel like you've been really able to very effectively transition the techniques and strategies from, from sport to non-sport domains. Yeah, I, I think um, it's always a, a learning journey, isn't it, Laura, with research yeah. technology now coming in um, is really having a huge different kind of um, slant on the way we may work going forward in the future with virtual teams and, you know, the impact of them. Um, so, so I think, yes, yeah, so far um, I'm enjoying what I do and I can actually see a benefit of the work that I'm engaged with and that it makes a difference. But I, I honestly feel that I'm still, like everybody else is, when they're passionate about the area, have so much more to learn. And I think the, uh, the environments going forward are going to be very different to what we've currently encountered. Um, and it's, it's going to be a challenge to kind of work through and provide solutions at work in the real world with some of those environments as well. So I think you're continually learning, continually adapting, and continually trying to get to the, the next kind of creative thought about how you can maximize and help performance grow in whatever domain you're working in. Sure. Yeah. I saw a, a somewhat recent paper from you advocating for uh, the use of body camera body camera footage in training for police officers. Um, uh, and, and so it sounds like that's something you've used very successfully in sport where you take really important clips, not watch a whole event, but, but, but hone in on the really key pieces and use those for reflection. And, and so um, it, it sounds like you, you're making the case that the, this, this very same technique might be very helpful in the law enforcement world. Yeah, I think there's transferability at different levels because I think um, if we actually are able to capture maybe the cognitions of an expert officer in those environments and then actually explore what a novice officer is actually seen in those environments by differentiating between the two, we start to identify the components that maybe need to be trained and developed to enable officers' decision-making to be um, enhanced and um, in a manner then that enables them to more effectively do their job as they go through their developmental stages because you've got a novice learning from an expert, but through the implementation of um, research and CTA. I also think with AI now, uh, we've got a huge, uh, um, amazing opportunity to really integrate AI and we can integrate AI with decision-making and that will really help meet some of the challenges that we've got with training um, of, of officers in the way that um, it can be in, embedded into environments which might be more cost-effective, but more importantly, might actually produce some of the deliverables that the training needs to address um, in an environment then that's maybe more effective for the officers as well. So, and it can be scaled. Um, so I think the, the AI um, impact on both non-sport domain and sport domains um, is massively going to have an impact over the next few years with how we make decisions because I think the nature of the decisions will change because we have a higher flow of information. We need to deal with a higher flow of information and we need to be able to have mechanisms that enables us to do that. So it's a fascinating area of decision-making but also the interface now with technology. And I think the police is one way where that's quite a key, a key objective. It's, it's always seemed to me that the 
one of the major differences, and there are probably others, but one of the major differences between sport and non-sport domains is just in the, in the manner of goals, right? So the goal in sport is to win. Uh, there may be many goals leading up to that big goal, but that is the goal. Whereas in these police um, and, and other emergency uh, service domains, the, the goals are a lot more ambiguous. So I wonder if, uh, if this idea of of, of goals has uh, affected the the way that you go about your work in the different domains. Yeah, I totally agree. There's a huge difference to the two environments. And um, I think um, at other levels within sport, um, it moves away from the goals because it's about the development of the team and the athletes and the performers. Um, so the objectives are more kind of individually team developmentally driven. Um, but absolutely, I think the real world, when we move outside of, world, of sport into other domains, such as like the military or the emergency services, decision making is even more complex and it's increasing again because of the flow of information and data and that the assumption that there's one right way isn't correct because there isn't there's multiples and that depends upon the situation and individual factors and people involved in it and um, so absolutely i don't think it's this clean cut at all um but again, I'd argue that there's some transferability with a, a shared mental model and the way that the complexity of the shared mental model is layered that can probably help um, work through the decision points. And I think that's the difference is that the decision points are different within a non-sport domain um, to enable a more effective decision to be made. Um, but then the question is, is how do you define effective? Because in some um environments there isn't a clear success right even even the mental model about the goals or the idea of success gets a lot, lot squishier in those other domains absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah absolutely because um just because of the the scale of um how success will be determined there because um it, it, i don't think it's as simple as saying that there is a successful outcome sometimes there's just a preferred outcome um, which is is the right outcome um, just because of the complexity of the situation that you're actually in. Right. So, so you, you touched earlier on sort of the potential for AI to, um, uh, to be helpful. Uh, and it sounds like you are maybe moving a bit toward that direction. I'm wondering if, if there are other directions that you're looking to take your research or, or your consulting work. I think there's a few really um, interesting areas that are emerging now. I think for me, it's the ability of maybe the way we're evolving um, within kind of um, tasks in real world that you're now having these more fluid teams. So uh, the diversity of actually bringing people together with multiple skill sets and enabling them to work effectively and collectively within a short period of time. Um, fascinated by the processes that go on there within fluid teaming and decision making. I also think, especially given the current situation we all find ourselves in, um, the virtual environment and being um, virtual teams now is a, a growing area that I'm interested in as well and in relation to cyber too. So so it's fascinating. There's a, there's a lot of smaller avenues that are now starting to, to kind of grab my interests that I'm looking at exploring. Nice. Okay, so now I have kind of a, 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 a change of pace kind of question. I'm going to ask you, um, 
imagine that you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice naturalistic decision making. Okay. On pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What would you ask? Um, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting one. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, my instinct would be to say, um, who's Gary Klein? And if they couldn't answer that one, I'd probably get my answer straight away. Um, <laughs> And they would actually, uh, it's a kind of question where they have two options because they could, there are two Gary Kleins in this community, as we've already seen on our uh, podcast series. So uh, they've, they've got a, they've got a good chance of giving you a good answer. Yeah. And I guess the other one would be is how do they actually take the characteristics of NDN and use them in their own environment? So so I think from a more kind of research perspective, it would be that one, um, more of a fun one from the first option, I would say. Yeah, I think I, I, what you were saying earlier about sort of using the tools of CTA uh, as the learning technique, uh, I think that's really, really important. Um, I, I've done a fair bit of work in what I'll call expertise, expertise management, uh, which is really just sort of stressing the expertise part of knowledge management because, uh, you know, when organizations lose somebody, that's a pretty severe blow to the organizational, uh, you know, kind of corporate memory. Uh, Gary's talked about this. I've tried to apply it in a lot of places. And what I've, after doing that for several years, what I sort of came away with is organizations would be in much better situation if the employees had the tools of CTA because they can take much more efficient and much uh, more opportunistic advantage of those tools than someone like me coming in and interviewing people for eight hours a day. Um, and it sounds like you've done a very similar thing with taking those CTA tools and, and turn them into the learning experience. You're giving those tools to the learners. Um, and I think that's a really important uh, direction that our community uh, should push, which is how do we get, how do we get all these great techniques uh, out uh, so that other people can use them? Um, you know, we, we may be writing ourselves out of some consultancy work, but at the same time, um, the, the benefits uh, will be much more broadly realized if more people kind of understand the right questions to ask and, and understand at least you know, if not the terminology, at least what the models can tell us. I think that's a really, really great insight to your work. I, I totally agree. I think if we're thinking about now the complexity and the increasing complexity in which we all live, it's vital that we're agile and we're adaptable, no matter what the environment is that we're actually in. But we can only be responsive, agile and adaptable if we've got the mechanisms and the thought processes that match that because otherwise it's going to be a lot more slow um, um, and not as effective for us to actually deal with the modern world in which we live. Yeah. So we, we typically wrap these things up with a fun question and uh, knowing your background uh, and my personal interests, uh, I got greedy with this one um, <laughs> uh, because uh, I would just like to hear a, uh, I'd like to hear your favorite story from coaching field hockey. Oh gosh, um, um, I, I guess. Um, uh, oh gosh, um, I don't know which one I'd actually pick because there's so many that's been um, of interest. Um, gosh, I don't know, Brian. I can't find one that I would actually kind of home into with this. Um, 
I know we've played quite a few practical jokes with our team managers over the years, um, and they've been quite good. Um, I don't know. I'm struggling with it, Brian. <laughs> I'm struggling. I've got 22 years of experience, and I'm finding it hard to find one. Um, right. Well, maybe, this is a, maybe this is a lesson in CDM. It's kind of hard when you have so much experience to hone in on uh, on the important ones. Yeah, my, yeah. my decision-making on the spot is letting me down. I'd probably say um, the funniest one was when um, – um, it was an under-16 squad and it was an international tournament um, and we uh, arrived at a hotel um, and my manager had come down thinking that she'd got everything organised um, and the, all of the squad and all of the management played a joke on her about um, we couldn't stay in the hotel because of the rooms and that. So it's the only one that I can spring to mind at the moment because of the face on my manager at the time when she thought it was all sorted and it was the start of a tournament and it probably wasn't the uh, the best thing or what she wanted to hear at that time. But it was a real good kind of team bonding kind of joke where the team and the rest of the management team, except for the manager, um, really started to kind of um, click ready for that tournament. And the whole tournament was just a very different feel um, because we were very relaxed. So when I was thinking back, um, it was that situation that came to mind because of the fun um, that was attached to it, um, but also just the general feel of the team um, and the way we were together. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You, <laughs> all the coaching experience and you, and you offer up a fun story that uh, could happen <laughs> in any context, but actually uh, if I could just push that up a bit further, um, you're kind of pointing out uh, the fact that coaches have a lot to do. Right. And so um, all the coordination, all the, you know, organization of, of schedules and, and going to tournaments and that sort of thing, um, so I, I'll turn this fun question then uh, back to a bit more serious tone and ask, given the kinds of tools and suggestions that you've had for introducing um, uh, the, the framework and the, and the strategies, um, it feels like setting up the videos, uh, you know, coming to understand what these uh, techniques are and how to work them in, that feels like it could be a, a whole other level to the coaching uh, responsibility. Um, and so, uh, so talk a bit about how to sort of weave these things into the approaches that you, that you are already doing, because it, it sounds like a lot of work, frankly, uh, and it sounds like a lot of effort and time and um, uh, just to sort of introduce these things. Is, is, is that a, is that fair to say, first of all? And if, if not, then how, how did you, how are you suggesting people sort of weave these things into their routines? Yeah, I, I agree. I think being a coach is a hard, is a hard job. And I think sometimes people just see from the outside what they want and they see the kind of match day and they see the kind of uh, maybe the debrief afterwards and they don't realize uh, the long days that go in into the coordination and the planning and the supporting of athletes and other staff as well. So it is hard and it is complex. Um, I'd probably say that there's the, for me, there's always a kind of trueness to actually have something that you're doing because it makes a difference. And um, 
and not just doing it because it's trendy to do and because you see other people doing it. So for me, there's a, a kind of really true philosophy that you need to do what is right to enhance performance and not just to do stuff to kind of copy others and go along with the trend that's actually trending in a sport. Because I think at the end of the day, the coach needs to have their vision on what is needed to make performance successful and how does that then touch their athletes and their management team that they work with. And then it's actually coming up with that alpha vision that we talked about in the beginning about what does that success look like? What is the content of that? And then starting to operationalize it and start to bring people into that operationalizing, which is then it becomes really hard work because to do that, you can't be dictatorial in one way of saying how everything needs to be done. Although I appreciate at times as a coach, there is a need for that. It's about, as you've talked about with motivation, really, Brian, it's about motivating people then to be part of that operationalizing that process. So they start to take responsibility for the elements that are related to their roles. And I think then the coach becomes more of a facilitator and a coordinator um, rather than the one that's actually having to drive and think everything because no one person can have all the answers. Excellent summary. Um, this has been really, really interesting. And um, I, I think especially for uh, for the idea that uh, NDM tools, methods and models, um, you know, they, they can also, they can be more than just research tools. Uh, that, that's a main lesson that I'm coming away with from you today. So thank you very much. Uh, this has been a real pleasure to speak with you. And uh, on that note, um, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. So for the NDM podcast, I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. 